Welcome back. I'm your host, Nico Perino. Early last month, Fire Senior Fellow James Kerchick wrote a story for The Atlantic about a man named C.J. Hopkins. C.J. is an American, but in the early 2000s, he left America because of what he described as the fascistic atmosphere in the lead-up to the Iraq War. 20 years later, C.J. is standing trial in his adopted home of Germany. What is his alleged crime? He criticized Germany's coronavirus policies, comparing them to actions taken by Nazi Germany. Not to put too fine a point on it, the cover of CJ's 2022 book features a medical mask with a swastika superimposed on it. The title of his book is The Rise of the New Normal Reich. CJ learned he was under investigation after he posted two tweets featuring the book's cover art. One of those tweets criticized Germany's health minister. Perhaps not coincidentally, his book was also banned in Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands. German penal code prohibits the distribution of propaganda, the contents of which are intended to further the aims of a former nationalist socialist organization, and that's their euphemism, not mine. And CJ actually supports this law. He thinks Germany has a unique history that warrants it, but he strongly opposes the law's application to his situation, as you might imagine. He argues that his commentary does the exact opposite of what he's accused of. He says he's not intending to further the aims of the Nazi party. In fact, he's drawing comparisons between contemporary German policy and Nazi party in order to criticize both. And the law makes a clear exception for such expression. In January, CJ was acquitted by a disgruntled judge who clearly didn't like him and what he had to say and who made, I guess, a big show of putting on a COVID mask as she left the courtroom. And in the United States, that would have been the end of it. But German speech policies aren't the only policies different from those in the United States. In Germany, they allow for double jeopardy, which is to say that in CJ's case, the prosecution could appeal the judge's verdict. And that's exactly what the prosecution did. So in the coming months, CJ will stand trial again for a crime he claims he didn't commit and for which he has already been acquitted. James Kerchick closed his Atlantic piece by writing that a government that prosecutes a writer for calling its policies fascistic unwittingly validates the criticism. Today, we speak with C.J. Hopkins to understand his background, how he sees the world, and to try and make sense of why he's being prosecuted and why he refuses to back down. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, C.J. Hopkins, welcome onto the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I want to start by getting to know you a little bit. In the Atlantic profile of you that was written a couple of months back, uh, it described you as an old lefty, uh, or you described yourself as an old lefty. What do you mean by that? Um, it's it's just when I'm forced. I, I don't really like to categorize myself uh, politically or you know put myself in camps. But when I'm forced to, I usually just describe myself as an old lefty. I mean, you know, I grew up in a working class uh, household in uh, Miami, uh, you know, Democrats, uh, Kennedys were the heroes, Martin Luther King. Um, And, uh, you know, they're all Democrat voters and what have you. Uh, So it's just basically that's that's where I came from when I describe myself as an old lefty. It's. It's really the. It's as simple as that. I identify with the working classes and uh, and uh, the little guy, as my aunt Marietta used to say. 
Um, that's where it comes from. It's not that complex. What did you grow up aspiring to be? You're a playwright now, a satirist, a commentator. Had you always had an affinity for words and politics and philosophy, or did that come later? Um, I, I think as a kid, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. Um, I uh, I got involved uh, in the theater pretty early. I was uh, I, I, you know I was an actor in uh, high school and what have you, and uh, did a bit of uh, modeling even. Um, and uh, didn't like being an actor very much because uh, everyone, uh, you know, tells you what to do all the time. Um, and uh, I have this problem with authority. So uh, I studied uh, film in uh, college, film and communications. Um, Where'd you go? Uh, University of Miami. Yeah, I was, I was not a, a, a wonderful student. Uh, so I, I didn't have the grades to get into any, uh, you know, top-notch schools. Um but it was a good film program and uh, didn't want to go out to Hollywood and get into the film business. Uh, so I moved to San Francisco and wrote a lot of really bad poetry. Uh, and uh, my uh, ex-wife uh, dragged me back into the theater. And uh, that's when I really started writing uh, for the stage. I think I've, I think I've always been a writer at heart. When I was in uh, college, you know, I wrote for the you know, college newspaper for a while, the junior college newspaper. Um, I've always basically been a writer and uh, drawn to the theater. What brought you out to San Francisco? Um, it was about as far away from Miami as I could possibly get. Um, and, uh, also at the time I was, uh, a big fan of the beats. I had a head full of, you know, Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and, um, all those guys. And I thought San Francisco would be uh, romantic. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I packed my then girlfriend, uh, in a car and, and drove across the country. Did you have an interest in politics or political philosophy at this time? Or did that come later? Were you more focused on, on poetry and literature? Came, it came later. I really wasn't very political uh, in my early 20s at all. And again, um, I, I, I credit my ex-wife with that. She dragged me back into the theater and sort of politicized me um, at, the, at the same time, got me interested in, in politics. If I'm not mistaken, you eventually got to New York City, correct? Yes. Yeah. Once I, once, once, once I hooked up with my ex-wife and, and, and got involved with the theater again, uh, you know, San Francisco is not a theater town. If you want to work in the theater, you've got to go to New York. Um, so we, we pulled up stakes and went to New York City. And it was in New York that I read you helped organize some of the protests to the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, yep. That's true. This is this, you know, we're, we're up to 2003 now. Um, and, uh, yeah, by that time I had been working, uh, downtown, uh, in the off, off Broadway, uh, theater, uh, uh, sphere, uh, for quite a while. And, uh, uh, yeah, the run up to the invasion, uh, started and, uh, my current wife and I helped, uh, organize, uh, basically the downtown theater community and brought bread and puppet down, uh, from Vermont and what have you. So, yeah. What got, what got you concerned about that war in particular? Well, I had been uh, a big critic of the first uh, invasion of Iraq. Um, and uh, I had been just following uh, the uh, you know, political developments uh, uh, basically since uh, then. And 
I just, you know, when, you know, I was in New York when 9-11 happened and uh, I just had the feeling right away that, you know, this, this, everything is going to change um, and, uh, uh, and it's going to be ugly. Um, and, and it was, if, if, I don't know if people remember, um, but uh, it, it was really, from my perspective, pretty ugly for a while. Um, Americans, even in New York City. Americans were just uh, so angry and so hurt, and and the the sense was uh, we're going to get revenge on somebody, uh, anybody, and it doesn't really matter who it is. Um, and so I watched the the rollout of the pre-invasion propaganda, and uh, of course I watched it critically, um, and and I just. I, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't take that plus the atmosphere in the in the states at the time. You said you opposed the first invasion of Iraq, but was this second invasion the first time you had ever organized political protest at this scale? Uh, yeah, the first time I was ever really involved in any type of uh, of organizing like that. I was uh, I was at the protests uh, down in D.C. Uh, you know, during the first invasion, during uh, what was it called? Was it the Gulf War, the first one? Yeah, the yeah. Gulf War. Yeah, I believe. <laughs> um, yeah, I took part in those protests, but wasn't involved in in any of the organizing. Um, no, that was uh, two thousand and three, uh, February two thousand and three. That was the first time I really got involved like that. Yeah, the reason I ask is because it's around this time or in the wake of this that you moved to Germany. Right. And I know the Atlantic kind of frames this as you moving um, because you were distraught with the idea of another George W. Bush term. Um, I think you took issue with that on X, formerly known as Twitter. What led you to leave the United States? You've been in Germany now for 20, over 20 years. About 20 Um, years, yeah. What's what was going through your mind at the time? I I just I, I asked because. You know, for someone who, as you said, didn't organize political protest at this scale, kind of came into a political awakening, it sounds like a little bit later, to kind of uproot your life for these reasons uh, is a drastic move. But maybe there were other reasons at play. Yes, there were other reasons at play. <laughs> uh, basically, I had been bouncing around in uh, Europe, mostly in the UK and uh, a little bit here. Uh, uh, after one of my shows, I got uh, uh, got lucky with one of my plays at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, it took off and uh, toured all over the world, and uh, I was in the UK a bit for that, and uh, exploring Europe uh, really for the first time. And uh, at the same time, you know, Home was a little tiny studio in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Um, and I was, you know, just over forty years old. Uh, deeply in debt, uh, no health insurance, um, and basically living the life of uh, an artist, uh, you know, in New York City. Which, uh, for for those who, I don't know if people can even live that life anymore. Um, but it 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 was it was pretty tough. And and so here I was, you know, running around in Europe and sitting around in cafes in Berlin, which were still really cheap at the time. Berlin was ridiculously cheap. Um, And, you know, people sat around in cafes and drank coffee and argued about philosophy and politics. And it reminded me a lot of San Francisco in the mid-1980s when I lived there, when San Francisco was still cheap. This was before the dot-com boom. 
all of which is to say one of the one of the main reasons that that I jumped ship and, and came to Europe was simply my quality of life. Just simply the lifestyle um, in in Europe uh, agreed with me, and uh, and I I just figured that I could have a, a better life, better quality of life here. At the same time, part of what was making me really miserable in the states was just the atmosphere at the time. Uh, you know, I'm I. You know, I love the United States. I'm an American, and I always will be. Um, but just the, you know, the, the the American flags were omnipresent, and uh, people were just gung ho to you know invade somebody, somebody, and bomb somebody, and get revenge on somebody. And yeah, I was just watching people swallow the pre-invasion propaganda, and then I was watching the initial enthusiasm after the invasion. Uh, and it, it was a crazy idea. Um, I, I, as you said, I, as you mentioned, I, I helped organize the, the big protests in New York at the time. And then I was in London when the actual invasion started. I was at the big protests there. And I mean, we put millions and millions of people in the street all over the world, and it meant absolutely nothing. It achieved nothing, <laughs> and they just went ahead with the invasion. I got back to New York after one of my trips in Europe, and I said, "What am I doing here? You know, why why am I living this way?" Um, and so I just I just took off. Aside from kind of the cultural difference and the cafe life, so to speak, in Europe that you so much enjoyed and reminded you of San Francisco, what was the political zeitgeist in Europe? At this time, I recall going on a trip to Italy. I believe it was in 2005. Our tour guide was European and he said, I love America, but I'm not going back until George W. Bush is no longer president. Uh, I don't know if that was a widespread kind of belief among folks in Europe, but you make it sound like in the United States, uh, the dissent wasn't as widespread as you would have hoped. And there was this, it's hard to believe in our increasingly polarized times, but. Uh, People were pretty united in the United States and wanting to get them, them in, in quotation marks. Absolutely. It wasn't anywhere near as, um, as split as it is now. Uh, I, you know, those of us who were protesting, even though we did put millions of people in the street, I mean, we were called, you know, uh, terrorist sympathizers and Saddam lovers and, you know, every other name uh, that you could think of. It was, you know, again, the atmosphere in Europe uh, was extremely uh, anti-George Bush, extremely anti uh, the invasion of Iraq. Um, so when I arrived here in 2004, uh, 2005, uh, I, I kind of fit right in and, and uh, I was in sync basically with, uh, with the political culture here as well. So what have you been doing? We'll get to the current moment here in a second, but since 2003-ish, when you moved to to Europe, you've been you have a blog, Consent Factory. Uh, you're a writer. I mean, you're still a playwright, I assume. Which I didn't start until uh, 2016. Actually, my blog. Yep. So have you? So have you been playwriting, doing political commentary more broadly? And I was writing. Uh, no, I, I started. I, I started this, you know, political satirist and commentator gig. Um, in 2016, I started writing. Uh, I started writing a few essays. I didn't know what to do with them. I sent them into uh, Counterpunch, uh, which is you know which I used to read in New York, um, and uh, and things took off from there. 
But uh, prior to that, uh, yeah, I was writing my plays. Uh, I had another couple of plays produced, and uh, and uh, they did well and got published. Um, kind of finished uh, what I wanted to do in the theater. Didn't know uh, exactly what to do for a while. Uh, wrote a novel. Wrote a dystopian novel uh, that took uh, a few years. Uh, uh, well, it's huge. Um, it, it, it took, it took a few years. The first time I ever tried to write, uh, prose, write fiction. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then what happened basically, well, the background really is, you know, we're talking about the Obama years. Um, and, and the Obama years were, uh, you know, they weren't very interesting <laughs> politically to me. It was basically just, you know, global capitalism, uh, just doing what it does without any real, you know, conflict or drama. What got my attention, uh, was Brexit and Trump. Um, and, and, and what I, what I thought I was seeing and what it turned out I was seeing, uh, was this, this populist backlash, uh, that, that, that was rising up, that was emerging here. And then with Trump, it was emerging in the United States. And this is, this is what got my attention and, and, and drew me into writing my uh, political satire and commentary. Did you ever think you would be in Europe for 20 years? Did you ever think you would, you were going to come back? I, I really, I, I, I didn't know. I, I, I don't think I expected to be in Berlin for 20 years when I got here. Uh, there was definitely a time uh, years ago when I felt like, okay, this is it. It's home now. Um, and that has changed uh, as well. But uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't foresee any of this. Do you love Berlin? I, I can't really say that anymore. I, you know, I, I, loved, I loved living here for quite a long time. It, it, you know, great city. Uh, uh, like I said, I felt very much at home here. It, that changed dramatically in, in 2020 and the last few years, uh, you know, have, they've honestly, they've broken my heart and, uh, and really kind of soured me <clears throat> on, uh, on the culture. Well, let's use that as a segue to kind of get into the meat of it, right? Um, 2020, of course, the COVID year, uh, what were you experiencing in Berlin and, and how are you kind of seeing it all unfold? Well, it kind of all unfolded in the course of four to eight weeks, I would say. Um, and I actually uh, uh, chronicled this. I documented it. I created, um, I think it's a 257 tweet thread <laughs> that, that I have published and that other alternative sites have published and what have you. And what it is the thread is simply, it's just mainstream media articles uh, uh, that were put out during those initial four to eight weeks, March and April of 2020 is what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, being a political satirist, I, I, I was paying attention to the headlines and I was paying attention to the message that was uh, being pumped out uh, by the corporate and state media. And the message was just unbelievably clear and horrifying. Uh, basically, they came out and they announced, you know, life as you knew it is over. 
this is the new normal. That's where the phrase came from. It's not my phrase. It came from the media. Um, this is the new normal. And the way it's going to work is that your constitutional rights are off. They're suspended. And uh, facts don't matter. Um, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to lock you in your house and you need, you know, uh, permission papers to go outside. And if we catch you outside without permission papers, the cops are going to throw you down and beat you up and arrest you. And, uh, basically if you, if you question our authority, if you question the official narrative that we're pumping out, uh, we're going to demonize you and, uh, and we're going to deal with you by force. Um, everything, everything that happened, you know, during the so-called Corona years, uh, COVID years, everything was announced in those first, uh, four to six weeks. Um, you know, the vac, the, the vaccinations, the lockdowns, the demonization of the unvaccinated, uh, the, the, the masks, everything. If you go back, if people go back and look at that thread that I compiled, uh, you will see it. And, and what, was, what was striking to me about it was how blatantly authoritarian it was. Um, the, the, a lot of the first messaging was all about, um, you know, we're rolling the police out. We're ready to roll the army out. Uh, you know, I remember Macron coming out right away and saying, I'm going to rule by decree. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't gradual at all. <laughs> so, so you were never a part of. So you have a lot. It's almost kind of doctrine in the United States now that um, the government went too far in the early years of the coronavirus. You you see this with the school lockdowns and the learning loss associated with it. You see a counter narrative now around masks. Uh, you see a counter narrative now around vaccines. Um, and these are, these are kind of prominent conversations. We even had cases at fire involving college faculty members who were questioning the origins of COVID who were brought up under investigations for engaging in racist, you know, hate speech because they posited that it came from the lab in Wuhan, we had a famous professor, Tom Tom Smith, at the University of San Diego, who said anyone who doesn't believe that this virus originated from a lab is swallowing a bunch of Chinese cockswaddle. And he was brought up on on you know, a hate speech investigation, more or less, uh, for doing that. I, I think it's hard now for a lot of Americans in 2024 to reflect on just how restrictive and some might say conformist those early weeks and months were, and even some of your most prominent COVID critics uh, now, people like Brett Weinstein, for example, in those early weeks and months, you know, were kind of accepting some of these narratives. Um, so, but you were, you were, you know, when people feel a threat to their security, they're more willing to accept restrictions on their liberty. And I think a lot of folks, including myself, felt that in those early weeks. Uh, but it sounds like you had a sense of what was going on early and had never really bought into the broader mainstream narrative. I mean, you, you have a, uh, you have a, a blog called the consent factory, right? Uh, you, which is, I'm assuming a reference to Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. So you have sort of like a political awareness of how consent is manufactured. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I think that's part of I think that's part of why I never really bought into any of it is that's 
that has has kind of become my job. Um, you know, monitoring monitoring the official narrative of the day and how that narrative is produced and the official propaganda that we are all being bombarded with, and theorizing why we are being bombarded with with today's propaganda and today's official narrative. Um, so. So yeah, I'm hyper. I'm I'm attuned to that, and and that's mostly what I'm paying to, paying attention to uh, when I'm watching the culture. Um, it, in a sense, I, I've been doing that, you know, all my life. A lot of my you know my plays are not traditional uh, stage plays, uh, you know, with stories and characters and what have you. I I, I kind of did the same thing in the theater. I was uh, trying to use the the uh, theatrical event. Uh, to get in and probe how it is that reality is constructed and how we come to believe, you know, whatever it is that we come to believe. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I was I, I was pretty uh, uh, attuned to the production of this uh, abruptly shifting official narrative. And again, I think it's very hard for people to remember. But if if you, if you go back and look at that 257 uh, tweet thread, there was nothing gradual about it. And there was nothing subtle about it. Um, the powers that be came out and announced, you know, we're we're going authoritarian. We're going totalitarian on you. You will show us your papers. You will stay inside when we tell you to stay inside. You'll wear this on your face, even though it makes no sense and even though all of the medical experts and scientific authorities have understood for years that mask mandates, you know, don't have any effect on, on viruses, you'll still, you'll put the mask on or we'll punish you. I got, I got hauled out of a grocery store in Berlin by, you know, three heavily armed police officers <laughs> for not, for not wearing a mask. Um, when and, was that? Uh, this was uh, holiday time, 2020. Okay. Uh, but this was, you know, this was already late. Uh, I had documented just numerous, numerous cases uh, here in Europe, in New York, in the States of, you know, police literally, you know, hauling people off trains, you know, throwing them down in the streets and beating them for not having masks on or not having permission papers to be outside. People forget this. Um, I, w- I was watching, I was, what I was watching very clearly and documenting the time was the sudden, it was the very abrupt transformation of Western societies all around the world into a nascent totalitarian state. There's there's no other way to describe it. Was Germany more restrictive than some of these other Western societies? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, I don't know. You know, I experienced it here, so I'm 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 kind of biased in that way. Uh, but if you look at uh, uh, what happened in Australia. Um, uh, in some parts of Canada, I don't. I don't know if Germany was any more fascistic than anywhere else. Um, uh, things got got pretty fascistic in Australia. Um, uh, there are many, many examples there. You know, the police raiding synagogues, and uh, well, they did that in the states too. Yeah. Let's talk about your book now, "The Rise of the New Normal Reich," which is your third collection, if I'm not mistaken, of essays from Consent Factory. Can you walk us through what prompted you to, to publish that book? Yeah, what it is, is uh, it's my collection. It's the uh, essays from uh, 2020 and 2021. 
Uh, so the main part of the rollout of the new normal, all of uh, you know, the corona time. Um, I put out one of these collections uh, pretty much every couple of years, and I, ju- I just pick the best, what I think are the best essays uh, from uh, my blog, and it's now really my Substack is, is where most of it is happening. Um, and I collect what I think are the best essays, and I put them out. These, this happened to be 2020 and 2021. Um, uh, so uh, that was the obvious uh, title, <laughs> because that was the focus of, of all my uh, essays. Yeah, again, for our listeners, the title is The Rise of the New Normal Reich. And can you describe for us the cover and maybe any inspiration behind the cover, which is, as we will learn, what ultimately got you in hot water? Yeah, I think I think maybe older Americans, uh, I didn't realize this, but I'm getting older. I think older Americans will recognize it. Maybe younger Americans won't. Uh, but uh, there's the you know world-famous international bestseller by William Shirer, uh, which is the history of uh, Nazi Germany. And, it, and the title of the book is uh, The Rise and Fall of the, of the uh, Third Reich, right? Um, and uh, one of the covers, the most I've, famous cover of his book, the one that I had anyway, um, is all black uh, with big red lettering for the title. Um, and under the title, there's a little white circle with a swastika. So obviously what I did was I basically stole his cover. I copied his cover. We put my title in big red letters against a black background. There's a little white swastika, a little uh, white circle with a swastika in it. And we covered the swastika up with one of the medical looking COVID masks that everyone was forced to wear. Um, This was uh, by my brilliant cover artist, Anthony Freda, uh, who's done the cover for all of uh, all of my uh, consent? Based in the United books. States, right? Yeah, he's in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, so basically, we we just draped uh, a COVID mask over the swastika, um, and so it's a direct reference to the to the Shirer book. Yeah, I actually have to bring that up, the William Shirer book, because he also wrote another book that I want to recommend to our listeners called the Berlin Diaries, which is essentially his diary notes while he was a foreign correspondent in Berlin. And the reason I recommend this, because you often read about the rise of the Third Reich after the fact, people reflecting on it later. He is writing about the rise of the Third Reich as it's happening and reflecting on a day-to-day basis on it happening. And I, I was a history major in college and our teachers always told us, you know, the people living through history don't know how it's going to end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're reflecting on history later, you tend to think that the results are inevitable, but they're not. Uh, the people living through it don't know. And so that book is probably the best example of someone living through it and not knowing how it's going to end. Although he's prescient in many ways, he didn't know exactly how it, how it was going to end. So I want to recommend that book to our listeners, uh, The Berlin Diaries or The Berlin Diary, I forget. Um, but the the rise of the th- and fall of the Third Reich is also excellent. I haven't read it all. I must admit, it's like fifty hours on audiobook. Um, but I've I've been making my way through it for the course of years. I'll pick it up. I'll put it back down. Pick it up. I'll put it back down. Uh, the one thing I learned from that book is just how goonish all the members of the early Third Reich were, and of course the later Third Third Reich. They were like you talk about deplorables, those folks were often in case like the, the rejects from society were making up that, 
that party. Um, it's just incredible. And William Shire lays that, that all out. It's, so it's a, it's, it's a really good point. And, uh, uh, one point that I'll make, uh, because those essays, the essays collected in, in, in my book, it's the same thing. It's month by month, I basically reporting um, on, on what was happening and documenting it. Um, and for people who have read the book or if people want to uh, read the book, you know, there, uh, there, there are just hundreds and hundreds of citations of the type of totalitarian behavior that I'm talking about, um, it's so easy to forget. And I think it's our natural instincts to forget, uh, but they're documented. It's all uh, cited in my book. The, th- the thing that I thought of while you were talking, Nico, is, you know, Shirer, I had, I had 20th century totalitarianism and the, the, the example of Nazi Germany to refer to as I was doing my reporting. And of course, Shirer didn't. Uh, uh, you know, which which is which is one which is kind of a crucial difference. Um, that I, I wanted to make that point because it's a point that I've made in a lot of my essays, and um, it's in the book, of course. You know, when I talk about the new normal as a new emerging form of totalitarianism, a lot of people hear that and they think, "Oh, that's completely ridiculous." You know, there's no you know Nazis aren't running around with jackboots, you know, they're not lining people up against the wall and, you know, putting them in concentration camps. And, and so Godwin's law, right. That's what it's referred to. Exactly. On the internet. And, and I've, and I've gone to some lengths to make the point that of course it is not 20th century totalitarianism. It's not Nazism. It's not Stalinism. It is a different new emerging form of it. And of course, when you are faced with a new emerging form of an authoritarian or totalitarian system, of course, you don't recognize it in the same way that Shirer had nothing to refer to as all as he was watching society be transformed. Most, most people going through those years, 2020 to 2022, basically, you know, th- nothing to refer to, nothing like this had ever really happened before. Your books were banned, or your book, I should say, was banned in a few countries, Germany, Austria, and Netherlands, most famously on Amazon, although you were told, if I'm not mistaken, that it was also unavailable in bookstores if folks wanted their bookstores to open, uh, to order them, excuse me. Well, it, yeah, this is, it's a tricky legal point. I can't, I can't legally claim that the German authorities have banned the book for distribution in bookstores. Um, I absolutely can. Uh, Amazon sent me the notice. Uh, this this all happened at the same time. Uh, basically, what happened uh, was I tweeted these these two tweets um, that got me into uh, court. Um, I tweeted these two tweets in August of 2022, so a, a few months after the book was released. Um, uh, an organization, uh, I'm sure we'll get into all of this in detail, but an organization which is an arm of the German government, somebody saw the tweets um, reported them to uh, uh, Twitter and said, uh, delete these tweets. Uh, so Twitter censored the tweets at the uh, request of the German government, um, uh, uh, reported the tweets to the Bundeskriminalamt, which is the federal police office here. Um, and they started a criminal investigation, which led to my prosecution. And at the same time, Amazon sent me a notice and said, oh, we're banning your book in uh, Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands. 
uh, because it violates this German law. I don't have, I don't yet have proof of communication from the German authorities with Amazon, but it would be a hell of a coincidence <laughs> if that's not how it happened, because it all happened within the space of three or four days. I want to just read your your two tweets here uh, for our listeners and for those watching on YouTube. I'm sure we can get them put up on screen. Uh, one says the masks are ideological conformity symbols. That is all they are. That is all they have ever been. Stop acting like they have ever been anything else or get used to wearing them. And then the hashtag there reads the masks are not a benign measure and the tweets in German. So this is a rough translation. Uh, and then you have another tweet that says the masks send a signal. And the follow-up tweet is, uh, says, this is a picture of Karl Lauterbach, the health minister of Germany, who said in an interview, the mass send a signal. Pretty run-of-the-mill stuff here in the United States. Uh, but the, the, the thing that got you in trouble, of course, is sharing as an image associated with those tweets the cover of your book, which has the white uh, medical mask with the, a very kind of like, you almost have to look kind of carefully, uh, swastika. Well, that's super important superimposed on it um which of course is the point of that piece yes. of the piece of artwork is is for you to take a second and say oh what's that behind the mask what were you being prosecuted well and i guess starting what were you being investigated for yeah well let's back up um the 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 tweets were sent out the context of the tweets this is August of 2022. And what was happening at that time is there was a lot of discussion in Germany about should we end the mask mandates, right? Is it, is it, time, is it time to stop, you know, mandating that everybody wear masks all the time? Um, oh, the, Germany still had mask mandates going into oh, late yeah. 2022. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, they were gone in the United States at that point. Yeah, I, I, rem- I remember. They were not in Germany. The, 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 the mask mandates were in place. You had to wear them everywhere. Um, uh, the, if I remember properly, uh, you know, as one of the unvaccinated, we were still being segregated. Um, uh, you know, the unvaccinated people were not allowed to participate in society, basically. Anyway, they were, they were considering uh, ending the mask mandates. This was the discussion that was going on in the culture. And there was a huge uh, backlash uh, among, you know, just German society, uh, uh, people rising up and saying, no, no, you can't end the mask mandates. And, you know, the mask mandates stay in place. And, uh, there was, uh, uh you know, one of the hashtags was, uh, die Masken bleiben auf, you know, it's the masks stay on. And, and another one was, uh, the masks are, uh, mild, uh, measures, right? So in my hashtag, I was, I was playing, with their hashtag. <clears throat> so anyway, that was the context of, of the, the two tweets that were sent out. The Karl Lauterbach uh, tweet, he's the health minister of Germany. I, I couldn't- He's like the Anthony Fauci of the United uh, States. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and I couldn't resist because it was an article, you know, I used uh, his quote from an article in Die Welt uh, where he came out and said, the masks always send out a signal. And I saw that and I was like, yes, that's exactly my point. Carl is, that's what they're for. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not to protect us from a virus. They are to send out a signal. Um, and that signal is, you know, I conform. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm following orders. Um, and, and so anyway, I, I, I put the tweets out. Um, this, 
this entity, and uh, and I will get into this a little bit because it's interesting. Um, uh, there's the entity that saw them and reported them. It's called uh, the Hessen Cyber Competence Center, Hessen 3C. Now, they are a department of a department of the Interior Ministry of the Federal State of Hessen. But they are also a part of the federal network of monitors of hate speech and so-called disinformation and what have you. Um, they're the ones that that found my tweets, and uh, I'll reiterate this and 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 try to make it simple so that it sinks in for people. They saw two tweets that I put out. They contacted Twitter and had my political speech censored. They contacted, uh, I, I believe they contacted Amazon. Um, I can't prove it yet, but it looks like it. They contacted Amazon, had my book banned. They contacted the federal police authorities and launched a criminal investigation of me that went on for months and that uh, has culminated in a criminal prosecution of me for these two tweets. The, the pretext the pretext of all of this is the fact that there's a swastika on the cover of my book, right? It's, it's a pretext. Uh, the, 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 law, the law in Germany is actually incredibly clear. Uh, no, Nazis are not allowed to you know, display swastikas. You're not, if you're a Nazi, you're not allowed to go out in the street displaying swastikas. You're not allowed to uh, publish you know, pro-Nazi material with Nazi symbols on it. But of course, people are allowed to use swastikas for specific purposes. <laughs> you know, you couldn't, you couldn't watch a Quentin Tarantino film or read a history book if they weren't. And these, these, these exceptions to the ban on swastikas are absolutely clear, and they're clearly written <laughs> into the German law. One of those exceptions is for art. The other, another exception, the one that applies to me, is is you're allowed to use or display swastikas if you are countering, if you are fighting against or struggling against anti-constitutional activity. Right. So, the all of the action that was taken because of these two tweets, yes, the pretext was the swastika on the cover. But it was a pretext. It was very clear to me from day one that this is a crackdown on dissent, um, and and it's I'm just one of many many cases uh, where this is happening. In the prosecution's pleading, you publish this uh, on your Substack. Uh, they say the accused is interested in relativizing this Nazi tyranny, which is also the aim of supporters of this ideology in a different form. By specifically using the swastika, the accused, that's you, equates the crisis management measures of the years 2020 to 2022, which came about within constitutional procedures and were enacted and implemented by and through democratically legitimized institutions with the dictatorial methods of the Nazi regime and thus, regardless of its intention, promotes the normalization of nationalist socialist ideas and actions. You have this exception to German's penal code, namely 
Article 86A, which prohibits prohibits the dissemination of propaganda, the contents of which are intended to further the aims of the former Nationalist Socialist Organization. But you have, as you mentioned, this list of exceptions, which includes civic education and countering anti-constitutional activities, art and science. William Shire's book, for example, can be sold in, in Germany, uh, which has an even starker uh, swastika on the cover. But proving that you're countering anti-constitutional activities can be difficult if the government says, no, what we're doing is constitutional. And of course they're going to say that, right? So it's like you, if the, if the government has the right to say that, no, what we're doing is constitutional and because we believe what we're doing constitutional uh, is what we believe, therefore you don't fall into this exception, right? Um, it just seems like it's, it's absurd um, for the government to be making the argument it did in that, in that pleading. I, uh, I, I actually got this in, in court. Um, <clears throat> as you said, this was in a pleading. It wasn't an argument that the prosecutor made. Um, so oh, it wasn't. Okay. It, well, no, it was. He, he made it in a plea. In a, uh, I don't know if it was a pleading, but it was one of his briefs uh, to the court in the course of the investigation. It's not so. Okay, yeah. He didn't stand up in court uh, uh, last Tuesday and, and uh, say this. But I got it in because I forget the judge was questioning me, you know, something about the, the artwork and the, in the comparison. Um, and so I was able to get it in and bring it up. And, and, and I read that quote, uh, that you just read. Um, and I read it and uh, because I found it, I found it incredibly offensive and I found it just staggeringly ignorant. Um, and I said so in court and, and I reminded, uh, the prosecutor and everybody else in court, you know, this is, this is the argument that a lot of people are making. Um, you know, it's like what happened in 2020 and 2021. It was nothing like, you know, the Nazi dictatorship because everything was done legally and democratically. And what I reminded everybody of is, yeah, so was the transformation of Germany into a Nazi dictatorship. It was all done democratically and legally. And I cited the examples. I don't have them off the top of my head. Yeah, I got them right here. Um, in the election of July 1932, the Nazi party won 37.3% of the vote and became the largest party in the Reichstag. On January 30th, 1933, von Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler Germany's chancellor. In the aftermath of the Reichstag fire, Hitler convinced von Hindenburg to pass the Reichstag fire decree, which severely curtailed the liberties and rights of German citizens. And then there was the Enabling Act of 1933, which was passed by the Reichstag on March 23rd. This law gave the government the power to override individual rights prescribed by the Constitution because of a so-called emergency. Yeah, it's one of the one of the first essays that I wrote specifically about Germany. Um, I mean, most of my book, most of those essays from 2020 and 2021 are not about Germany. Um, they're about, you know, the United States and the UK and Australia and Canada and, and everywhere in the West. But one of the first articles that I wrote uh, about what was happening in Germany, it was called The Germans Are Back. And, and uh, uh, I referred specifically to the Enabling Act uh, of 1933. And I did that because what was happening at that time is the Bundestag, the German parliament, was revising the Infektionsschutzgesetz, which is the Infection Protection Act. Right? They, and, they, and they revised that in order to suspend constitutional rights because of a state of emergency. Right? So it, it, 
they basically said, you know, apocalyptic virus, viruses everywhere. So guess what? We, we're going to, we can now ban protests. We can force people to wear masks. Um, you know, neither people forget by the end of it, Germany was this close, this close to passing legislation mandating vaccinations for the general public. Austria did it. Austria passed it. You know, it, it's that's when I when I when I watched what was happening back in 2020, when I watched how how constitutional rights were were being suspended or canceled, you know, based on a so-called you know, state of emergency. Uh, knowing a little bit of my history, I, I immediately thought of the Enabling Act of 1933. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the prosecutor's argument, uh, I, I just found it, I found it insultingly ignorant. Can, can you give our listeners in the United States a sense of the sensitivities around German history and the Nazi party that would uh, lead to the sort of law that you're being prosecuted under. And of course, we understand that you disagree that you should, you're even caught within that law, uh, given the exceptions, but uh, we don't have something like that in the United States. Um, So do I mean, do you think it's a good idea in a country with the cultural history that Germany has? It's interesting point. And I also made this point in court Um, and it surprises some people because I am I'm basically a free speech absolutist and people know me as as a free speech absolutist. And I absolutely think, you know, I despise Nazis. I despise neo-Nazis. But I think in the United States that they need they need to be allowed to run around with their Nazi flags and, you know, make asses of themselves. Um, uh, I make an exception for Germany. I said this in court. I do not have a problem with this law. I do not have a problem with paragraph 86 um, uh, at all. I, I, I think that because of Germany's unique history, it is absolutely appropriate for there to be a ban on pro-Nazi propaganda. Yeah. And, and the reason I don't have a problem with this law is because the law includes these specific exceptions. Right, it's not a blanket ban on the display of swastika of swastikas or Nazi symbology. It is very clearly written to ban neo-Nazis and 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 pro-Nazi propaganda. So no, I don't have a problem with the law at all, and I said so in court. <laughs> so, against your lawyer's advice, uh, you republished the tweets on on your Substack, which I guess sparked a second criminal investigation this time allegedly for minimizing Nazi crimes. I have to ask you, why not just pay the fine? Why not just go on with your life? You write in one of your Substack posts uh, that in Germany, the way the game works is they charge you with a misdemeanor crime and hit you with a hefty fine, but one that is significantly less than what you'll have to pay a lawyer to fight in court. So you can essentially like plea out, just pay the fine. Uh, but if you go to court, everything's going to be more expensive. Oh, and you risk um, jail time and an even larger fine. I think under this code, you face either a fine of 3,600 euros or about $4,000 um, or 60 days in jail. So but why not just... That was that was just my fine. It could be any amount or, or any amount of time in jail. Yeah. 
Oh, under the code. So that was just what they were threatening with you with. Yeah, specifically. Yeah, but I, I, I think, I think the, I think the law. I think they can put you in jail for up to three years. Oh, okay. Um, and there may be a limit on the fines. I don't know. Um, but your question. You've been persnickety me. about this, long and the short of it. You're not willing to just go away. Um, it's it's a, it, it's a principle. I, I I was just speaking to someone about this the other day, and and you know some some principles are important enough that you have to fight for them. Um, the, 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 only, the only way that we preserve our democratic rights, our rights to free speech and freedom of the press, which to me are, is the foundation of all of our democratic rights. If, if we can't speak and if we can't uh, you know, report on what the government is doing. If we don't have freedom of speech, if we don't have freedom of the press, none of our other democratic rights really mean anything. And what has been happening, what I've been writing about for quite a while, is, is dissent is, it, it, has, it is being demonized and increasingly it is being criminalized. And, and the amount of censorship and, you know, visibility filtering, uh, the manipulation of, of, of content that people see on the internet um, has been increasing. Uh, and uh, it, it, most people are probably not aware of it. There are, you know, there's all of this new legislation that's being rolled out and taking effect. There's the, uh, I, I forget what it's called uh, in the UK, maybe you know, Nico is the public uh, safety bill or something. It's the new anti-disinformation anti and anti-hate speech legislation that's being rolled out um, in, uh, in, the, in Europe, in the EU. It's the DSA, the Digital Services Act. Um, just really authoritarian uh, legislation rolled out in Ireland. Um, it's, this is happening all over. What's happening is our right to freedom of speech, to freedom of the press is, is being I won't say gradually, it's being, it's being rapidly stripped away from us. Um, and the, so there was, there was never a question for me uh, of just paying the fine and walking away. Um, this, this is a fight. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break any uh, laws. Um, it was clear for, from the beginning to me that this was, this was punishment for dissent. Um, and, and I wasn't going to take it. So the case goes to trial. Then, right. And you're in front of the judge. This was what, January? Yeah, it's January 23rd. Paint a picture for, picture for us of what transpired uh, during that trial or hearing, whatever you want to call it. You got your verdict very quickly, a, which we'll get to. It was a trial. Um, it's a criminal trial. Um, this is the thing. It still boggles my mind. Um, you know, and it's why I emphasize it for Americans. It's, this is a criminal trial for two tweets. Um, uh, what happened was uh, yeah, we showed up in a court, beautiful courthouse, by the way, um, old Gothic building. We showed up, we were scheduled in one room, uh, but the, uh, the uh, observers, the witnesses, there were so many people that came to watch the trial, they had to move us into the big room. These were people who were just, who wanted to observe. These weren't, they weren't testifying. No. No, just just this people in the public gallery, um, you know, so the, so the audience, um, and uh, none of the mainstream uh, press uh, showed up. Of course, the German uh, the German media 
has been functioning pretty much like a proverbial Gabelsian keyboard instrument for many years now. Um, so no, no mainstream press, but uh, a good deal of uh, alternative, uh, you know, independent press uh, was there. Um, so there was a lot of uh, hassling with the rooms and people's press credentials and, and so on. And, and finally, we all uh, piled in. Um, and the way the uh, trial works here, it's a different system. It's uh, an inquisitorial system. Um, so uh, we're all lined up at the table. I had an interpreter with me because I didn't want to, uh, I speak German, but I didn't want to be at a disadvantage while I was being interrogated. Um, uh, the, the way it opens up is the judge uh, basically asks uh, questions um, and uh, interrogates me. And so I answered her questions for a while. Um, and, uh, and then the prosecutor joined in and he had some questions and, uh, uh, and, uh, and I was able to, uh, you know, uh, make my point about the history and, uh, and make uh, some other points about the masks. At one point, one of the most bizarre moments to me, um, the, the judge, uh, literally used an overhead projector, like people may re remember if they're old enough from, you know, uh, uh, elementary school in the United States. Yeah. So, so she put my tweets up put the tweets up on the overhead projector. So they're, they blew them up to giant size. Um, and then there was a whole uh, uh, discussion that ensued about, about whether uh, uh, Anthony Freda and I had placed the swastika on the mask or whether the, the swastika was behind the mask. Anthony Freda is the artist. Is who the artist. Who the art. Yeah. This, this whole kind of story reminds me of uh, the the judges and prosecution during Lenny Bruce's trials for his comedy, like trying to parse his art. It's always funny when art is put on trial. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, the, and the, the prosecutor at at one point actually argued, made the argument that uh, that that I was guilty uh, because because using the swastika in this artwork was unnecessary. Right. So apparently he's, you know, the judge of what is necessary in a work of art as well. Um, anyway, there was this, uh, you know, just this long period of, you know, questions and answers and, and interrogation back and forth. Um, and uh, my lawyer uh, educated people uh, a bit, reminded them of the actual German law, um, uh, which he had already done in a, in a pretrial uh, uh, pleading. So things went pretty uh, quickly. Um, and then I read uh, my statement. I read my statement in German, um, uh, and uh, I, I passed out a couple of English translations to people in the gallery. Um, it was, it's a long statement. It's an angry statement. Um, uh, I, I, I'd like to read two paragraphs of it, which I think kind yeah. of encompasses it. Go ahead. I won't do it as well as you did it, I'm sure. But you write or say, I will compare this new form of totalitarianism to earlier forms of totalitarianism and specifically to Nazi Germany whenever it is appropriate and contributes to our understanding of current events. That is my job as a political satirist and commentator and as an author and my responsibility as a human being. The German authorities can punish me for doing that. You have the power to do that. You can make an example of me. You can find me. You can imprison me. You can ban my books. You can censor my content on the internet, which you have done. You can defame me and damage my income and reputation as an author, as you have done. You can demonize me as a conspiracy theorist, as an anti-vaxxer, a COVID denier, an idiot, and an extremist, which you have done. You can haul me into criminal court and make me sit here in Germany in front of my wife, who is Jewish, and deny that I am an anti-Semite who wants to relativize the Holocaust. You have the power to do all of those things. And that's what they did. 
What was the response? The 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 judge was was not very happy. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, after I when I when I finished the speech, um, the uh, public gallery broke out into huge applause, which infuriated the judge, and she. She threatened, threatened to throw everybody out. Of I'm sure you might not like the uh, comparison, but it kind of reminds me of the the Fountainhead speech uh, in Ayn Rand's novel. Oh, no, I've never <laughs> read it. <laughs> uh, just in the sense that it's like this very power, powerful statement of principle. Um, hmm. It's funny and kind of rejecting the framework of the trial as as you do. Yeah, I uh, you know I, I've I've read it a couple of times because people are republishing, and of course I hate everything that I write after I finish it anyway. <laughs> I want to rewrite it all and cut it. Um, but, sure. but anyway, the, the, the public gallery uh, broke out into huge applause, which infuriated the judge. Uh, she got them to quiet down. Uh, she very quickly announced that I was acquitted of the charges. Um, and then she went off on, uh, you know, a bit of a tirade, you know, insulting uh, me and, uh, you know, calling me a, you know, a schwerbler, you know, which is, uh, you know, like an idiot, a babbling idiot. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and basically saying that, uh, uh, you know, that I'm, uh, that I'm, that I'm arrogant and that I think that I see everything and that no one sees anything else. And, and so therefore maybe it's me who is uh, totalitarian. And, uh, uh, and then the, the, uh, the, <laughs> The, the amazing part was, she, and she actually said this in court, she says, you know, by, by acquitting you of the charge, I am proving that Germany is not the totalitarian state, you know, that, that you claim it is. Um, and then she strapped on a COVID mask and, and stalked out of the courtroom. Um, did, did you get the verdict that day? Uh, oh, that was it. Yeah. That was the verdict. Uh, I mean, the, the verdicts came first and then came the, and then the berating. The wow. Berating. Yeah. A, a trial and a verdict on the, just like that, that quick succession. Um, but you thought that was it, right? You write, you write in, um, i got to find it here in my notes. So my show trial for thought crimes in criminal court in new normal Germany went pretty well. I was acquitted. Technically it isn't all over because the prosecutor has a week to appeal the decision, but given the circumstances, I doubt he will. He made a total fool of himself in front of a large audience yesterday. I can't imagine he will want to do that again. Yeah. I, I made this point in, uh, uh, in the, in the, the column that I just put out. Um, I really, I really think, uh, you know, th this case was never supposed to go to trial. You know, we talked about the thing with the fine and, the, you know, and, and, analogy with you know, the plea bargain system in the U.S. Um, this was obviously never supposed to go to trial. They, they were hoping that I would just pay the fine and, uh, you know, and, and take my punishment uh, because they had no case. They, of course, they had no case. There was no case from the beginning. Um, so the prosecutor, you know, when I say he made a fool of himself, he had no case. So he had to get up <laughs> And, you know, mutter a bunch of ridiculous uh, stuff and make a fool of himself. Um, I, I forgot what your question was. Uh, uh, you know. No, it's just you, you. So you thought the case was over. I thought it was. And I, th I, I thought it was. I thought it was over just because it was so uh, uh, overwhelmingly clear in the courtroom that that the the state had absolutely no case, no grounds 
to bring this prosecution, uh, to even launch this investigation in the first place. Uh, but but we knew it was a possibility that, that, that they would appeal. Um, my lawyer told me that right from the very beginning um, is the, you know, the prosecutor is going to have an opportunity uh, to appeal. Uh, I, I just I just couldn't believe that they would actually do it. Yeah, by this time, the case had been getting some international attention. I think I read some translated German coverage in which that was focused on. Uh, and folks thought that because the world was watching, in a sense, uh, Germany didn't want to make a fool of itself. Um, but here we are. They're bringing the, bringing the appeal, which I don't think you could do in the United States. It, wouldn't that be double jeopardy? What is yes. German law is different. Yes, <laughs> yes, the German system is different. <laughs> uh, yes, it's in the U.S. it's double jeopardy, um, uh, but here in Germany, no, the prosecution can appeal uh, the verdict, uh, which uh, they have done. Uh, so unless unless they decide to drop their appeal at some point, I'm looking at a repeat. I'm looking at another trial, except this time in the appeals court, um, probably in, I don't know, somewhere seven to nine months from now. So this is going to continue to hang over your head yeah. for seven to nine months. Oh, yeah. And and continue to cost me in legal fees. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Apparently, their plan is to keep putting me on trial until they get a judge who is willing to convict me of something or to bankrupt me with legal costs. Would Describe the impact this has all had on you. Again, reminding listeners that this is two tweets that uh, started it all. Yeah, two tweets, folks. Um, uh, I, first of all, what I, what I want to do is thank everybody uh, who has donated so many when when this when all of this first happened um, I, I hate asking for money um, I, I, I never wanted to be uh, somebody that goes on the internet and says you know send me money um, but uh, a very wise lady uh, uh, urged me to do it and so I said okay I've got a legal defense fund and people uh, just flooded it with money. Well, what I consider money, I've, I've never had much money. Um, so people just, you know, donations poured in. Um, and uh, uh, I'll start weeping if I talk about it too much. It really overwhelmed me. It's just uh, amazing level of support from my readers and from people who are just interested in defending freedom of speech. Um, and uh, what, Where can folks find that? Uh, the, it's just on my, I've got, I've just got a little, uh, section on my Substack now. Um, Anthony Freda, again, the cover artist from the book, he set up, um, uh, one of the American, uh, services. It wasn't Venmo, it was something. Um, uh, but that's down now. It's, it, it's, it's finished. Um, okay. uh, but people can go on my Substack and, uh, I've got a little section called legal defense fund. It's not a formal legal defense fund. It's me. Um, uh, uh, people, people just uh, donations poured in, and so uh, I just want to thank everybody, everybody that 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 supported me financially from the bottom of my heart. Because of that, my, you know, I've paid my legal bills with those donations. Um, so, so this hasn't bankrupted me. Uh, uh, what it has done, though, is is you know, kind of just beat the hell out of me emotionally. It's been eight months of. Uh, you know, I've been here for 20 years, but I've never had any run-ins with uh, the German authorities. And I'm an author, you know, <laughs> I'm not a criminal, you know, and it's eight months of uh, police investigation, my you know, book being banned, my speech being censored and being hauled into criminal court, uh, which is still just boggles my mind um, that, 
you know, to, I, I, I went to criminal court where, you know, thieves and murderers go. Um, it's, yeah, it's taken, it's taken a toll on me. It's, it's been stressful. The, what are the stakes if you lose this? The sense that I have is that citizens of Germany then can't draw comparisons with Nazi Germany and therefore cannot warn if Germany again is heading down the road of Nazi Germany. Well, it's, it's another funny thing about the, <clears throat> the German system because it's not, it's not essentially a case-based uh, system the way the United States is. Presidential. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not primarily based on precedent. It's a statute-based system, um, and the statute won't change. Um, it, 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 I was just acquitted of these charges. There are people who are being convicted of these charges, people who can't uh, you know, generate uh, uh, attention from the Atlantic and the Neue Zürcher Zeitung and you know, international press. And just so our listeners understand that, if, so if the judge convicts you, future judges can't look to that gu- judge's decision as a guide in how to rule into, in a separate case with similar facts. They, they can cite it, but it doesn't become the law of the land. It doesn't change. It doesn't change the law of the land in the same way that it does in the United States. Um, you know, other other lawyers can can other prosecutors and other lawyers can bring precedent up in court, and my lawyer certainly did. Um, uh, but it doesn't have the same effect uh, that it does in the United States. So, I guess by way of closing, right? We started with the, your story of your career progression and travels within the United States and and your organizing of the protests in New York City and the lead up to the Iraq war and your kind of desire to es- escape uh, the United States and what you saw as increasing fascistic tendencies, but also a yearning for the culture uh, and the sort of lifestyle that, that Europe had. Do you have any regrets given every, all you've gone through? Uh, in these past couple of months, or do you really are you really just feel as though Germany needs to live up to what's actually in the law? Well, I, I definitely feel that. Um, uh, now, I don't have regrets. I've, I've never been a person that really has that that has regrets. I, you know, maybe I'm just lucky or blessed or something, but I I, I don't really um, regret anything. Uh, uh, I've always I've always missed. Uh, a lot of uh, the United States, of America. As I said, I'm an American and I always will be. Um, uh, you know, part of the reason that uh, I'm in the situation that I'm in is because I'm an American. Um, you know, this is a, a, a broad generalization and it's not fair because it doesn't apply to every single person. But generally, uh, the culture in Germany is, is much more you know, obedient and order following. Uh, and much more respectful of authority. I was I was just doing an event recently before the trial, and uh, the, some in the German audience a- asked me, you know, what 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 would you suggest to us? Uh, and my suggestion was, I would I would like to see Germans generally have a little less respect for authority figures, and I think that's one of the the things that I cherish about being an American and having having grown up in the United States is is my lack of respect for authority figures. You know, respect is, respect is earned. It doesn't come with a uniform or a badge. Um, I forgot what your question was. Uh, uh, Whether you had any regrets. Regrets. I don't. Um, I, I, 
I have a, a funny perspective on life. I, maybe it's because I come from the theater. Is I, I, I feel like in one sense, it's all a big performance. We're all, we're all playing our parts in the big cosmic show. And we've all been cast in different roles. And I feel like this is the role I got cast in uh, as me. <laughs> and so I'm trying to play this role uh, the best that I can. And I'm taking what comes at me and I'm trying to, to respond to it and, uh, uh, and, and, and meet it uh, as best I can. Again, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not world famous, but a semi-public person, and I'm aware of that. Um, so how I react to things like this, you know, if I, if I had just paid the fine and said, oh, you know, oh, I'm so sorry, here, let me pay the fine, you know, that sends a message out that, that, that behavior, and, and it's not just public and semi-public people, it's all of us, everything that we do, every decision that we make, every reaction that we have, the things that we say, they're all sending out a message to everyone else <laughs> saying, this is how to live. The way that I'm living, the decisions that I'm making, the things that I'm doing, this is this is the way to live. These are the things you know that we should all be doing, and I'm I'm hyper aware of that. So I, I hope that I'm playing the role that I've been assigned uh, uh, well. Um, and so far, yeah, yeah, no, I don't have any real regrets. C.J. Hopkins, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for coming on to So to Speak. Thanks so much for having me on, Nico. That was C.J. Hopkins, a playwright, novelist, and political satirist who also writes for a self-titled blog on Substack, which we'll link in the show notes. Speaking of Substack, this podcast, So to Speak, the free speech podcast, is now on Substack. Check us out at sotospeak.substack.com, and please consider becoming a paid subscriber today. With your subscription, you'll get a Fire membership, as well as access to exclusive, once-monthly, subscriber-only conversations where I'll sit down with one or more of my FIRE colleagues to discuss the free speech news of the month while taking some questioners from you, our listeners, live. So head on over to sotospeak.substack.com and please consider becoming a subscriber today. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and produced by Sam Niederholzer and myself. It's edited by a rotating roster of my FIRE colleagues, including Aaron Reese, Ella Ross, and Chris Maltby. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on our YouTube channel, which features a video version of this conversation. We're also on X or Instagram, where you can find us by searching for Free Speech Talk. We're on Facebook as well. Feedback, comments, questions, you can send them our way at so to speak at thefire.org. Again, that is so to speak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. Other than, I guess, going over to Substack and subscribing. But until next time, thanks again, as always, for listening. Mm-hmm.